0: We're nearing the end of our trek through Deuteronomy. After today, I think, believe we only have two Sundays to go. This section of Deuteronomy that we're in is the section of the laws. It composes chapters 12 through about 24, 25. And uh, so I'm just skipping through them and, and, and choosing a couple of different sections. Last week uh, we talked about uh, social and economics. And then uh, I'm choosing the one for today, and then the one for next week, and then two weeks from today we'll be uh, concluding and summing up the series. I've chosen today to read from Deuteronomy 20, which um, if you have a Bible uh, open to that passage or you've read it before, you probably have the headline on that chapter called Laws Concerning Warfare. And I've deliberately chosen that out of all the ones I could choose, because, of course, of the state of war that our world finds itself in at this point. And I thought it would be good to just put that on the foreground and think about it together. So I'm going to read for you Deuteronomy chapter 20. It'll be projected, and you can also, of course, follow along in your own Bibles at your own desire. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priests shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemy, enemies to give you the victory. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peacefully, peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock, and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it. You shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down. Sorry, only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it fails. So this is a chapter that talks about war, and uh, you may remember about three weeks ago, we also talked about the command of God to destroy the Canaanites in the land, to destroy them utterly, to put them under the ban, as the word is. I'm not going to go into all of that. If you want to um, hear again what I said about that a couple of weeks ago, you can look that up in the podcast and you'll be able to find it there. So I'm not going to, to talk today about this issue of uh, the, the total destruction of the Canaanites. We've, we've already covered that. But um, as, we, as we look at the topic of war in this chapter, and as we just think about war in general, there is, of course, a tension. Uh sometimes none of us like war and we all believe that there shouldn't be war but sometimes war of course is necessary those of you who are uh maybe older baby boomers remember the 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 song by uh, by Edwin Star Star war huh what is it good for absolutely nothing that's not exactly true it's also true that throughout history Many, many times, including the history of our own country, war has been glorified. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our truth is marching on. Onward, Christian soldiers. So there's all these tensions that we find in our history when we, when we think about the issue of war. And I would like to present a perspective this morning on this chapter that I freely admit to you, and I've looked in about a dozen commentaries, i found in none of the commentaries. So this is strictly my own, and that means you can really do with it what you want. If you think it's something, that's fine, and if you think it's nonsense, that's also fine. I don't think it's nonsense, but you're free to judge it in any way uh, that you want to. But I'm just letting you know, this is not something that i found in some commentary somewhere. And that, uh, say, the people that train preachers is always a dangerous thing. But I'm going to take the risk this morning. What I'd like you to note about this chapter, and maybe you noted it already, is that um, very specific people and groups are addressed in this chapter. It's almost like a looking around the room, seeing who's here, and addressing them. So the people are gathered together, they're getting ready for war, and obviously everyone's worried, everyone's nervous. And so a priest comes up, this person who connects the people to God, and he says, number one, God will fight for you. Don't be afraid. Remember how God liberated you from Egypt? You can feel free and assured that God will also liberate you from your enemies. And then he looks at the people, and it's almost like he's looking them in the eye. He says, has anyone here built a house, and you haven't dedicated it? Well, go dedicate it now, lest you be killed in battle and some other man dedicate it. Has any of you planted a vineyard? And not enjoyed its fruit, and the vineyard when you plant it always takes a number of years to enjoy the fruit. Go back lest someone else enjoy the fruit. Has anyone gotten engaged and not married your wife, the, your, the, uh, your um, fiance yet? Go back and marry her, lest you die in battle and someone else have her. Is anyone this is really wild? Is anyone fearful and faint-hearted? Raise your hand. Go back because we don't want you to infect the rest with fear. So this priest is looking over the people. He's basically looking in their eyes saying, who do I have before me? You, 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 and you. And then he steps back a little bit and he says, okay, when you're going to a city that's far away, a city that's not in Canaan, a city that's not part of these six or seven tribes that we're going to mention in just a moment. When you go to these cities, offer terms of peace. And if they accept it, let everyone live. They will become your servants, but will basically live happily ever after. If they reject your peace offer, then only kill the men. Leave the women and children and the animals and and everything else alive, and enjoy the plunder. That's for the cities far away. But, and now come closer, here in the land of Canaan, there are these six tribes. And as you know, as God has already said, they're under the ban, as it's used in the Old Testament, which means they need to be destroyed completely. But... It's not just we just need to destroy them. If you noted it's there for a very specific reason that you not be led astray by them to worship other gods and so sin against Yahweh against God. So there's the cities there's there's the people individual, there's the cities far away, there's the cities close by, all all with their own direction and instruction. And then, and this is really fascinating. When you besiege a city, don't destroy the fruit trees. Every city has its fruit trees. Don't destroy them. Don't cut them down. Environmental concern. You are to preserve them so that the inhabitants of the city, whoever they are, can continue to eat from them, because they are one of the main sources, these fruit trees, of food and economic stability. And Robert Alter says, it was quite common in the ancient world to cut down the enemy's fruit trees, either for the practical purpose of erecting siege works or, as in some instances, in which the Greeks destroyed olive groves out of sheer spite. What struck me from this passage was that all these different kinds of people, and all these different kinds of cities, and all these different kinds of of tribes or groups or ethnic groups, and even the trees, even the environment, even the nature, is seen, noticed. There's no broad sweeping command to war without discrimination. All of you go and get all of them. There's no shock and awe here. There's no broad stroke portrayal of groups as the enemy. There's no seeing others as the other. Nothing is left to the passion of the moment or the passion of the political or economic time. And I would like to suggest to you that what we can take away from this chapter is we're making a mistake and we're opening ourselves for battle at whatever level it is when we don't see other people but we treat them as the other The other, that's them, those people, them over there, and we broad stroke. The Norwegian anthropologist Sarah Engelin, I found a quote uh, by her on this concept of the other. The examples from pre 1960s ethnography underline an important element of othering. And here it is Differences between societies are emphasized while similarities are hidden. You recognize that. We emphasize the differences and don't pay attention to the similarities. The wording in English implies othering. There are people, the basis, and there are gay people, black people, or people of color, poor people, people with a little add-on to distinguish them from the default person who is often, certainly from our perspective, white, straight, middle class, and in many cases also male. And I'm wondering, and I'm suggesting it to you, if aside from the hermeneutical difficulties of what do we do about God's command to destroy every living thing in a city, the lesson of this chapter is don't look at individuals or groups of people as the other. When you start doing that, You lose sight of the individual. And when you can paint in broad brush strokes, they are that. That leads to divisiveness, to partisanship, to hatred, to seeing the other as the enemy, or, and this may be one of the worst things, not seeing the other at all ignoring him or her or them. And now trying to bring that into our own society today, which, as we all know, and I've said many times from this place, is just just cut through with partisanship and cut through with seeing the other as the enemy. And now even as the, as the war in, in, in Ukraine comes across our screens, all of those are temptations are there. What about those Ukrainians and what about those Russians? And I was listening this week to a podcast called um, the Good Faith Podcast. It's with David French and Curtis Chang. And they had two guests on this podcast, and one of those guests was David Brooks, New York Times columnist, known uh, well known to a number of us. And just hang on a second with a quote. Just wait, just a minute, uh, Christopher. If you just go, thanks. Um, uh, he's columnist for the New York Times, and and he he looked back at the last few decades of American history, and then and, and talks about how this how the how we divide each other into groups. And I thought it was worth. Um, Putting up for you, but I just want to comment this is a, a transcription of what he said, so this is not something he wrote, so the language is a little bit a little, little bit different than if he had written it in an article. But anyway, thanks, Christopher, we can go ahead. and of course, I'm interrupting his train of thought a little bit. We went through a period in the '50s and '60s where we became a highly individualistic, autonomous country, and the church became a highly individualistic autonomy oriented church that God is within you, that you've got this little golden angel inside. Get in touch with your passions. Get in touch with yourself, which turns into the prosperity gospel. And this is not just Christians. All Americans have this individualistic perspective. It stops working. And by 2013, and I don't know why he chose that year, but that's what he said, they are looking at autonomy. And it doesn't feel like freedom. It feels like chaos. And so what do people do when they have too much freedom? Well, what did the Germans do in the 1930s? And what did the Russians do in the 1990s? I'm not directly comparing our situation to theirs. They escaped from freedom. And what did they escape from freedom into? Politics. Politics gives you community, or the appearance, the illusion of community, It gives you, listen to this, a moral system. Us versus them. We're good. They're bad. And so, the line between good and evil, this is magnificent, doesn't run down your heart. It runs between people and groups. And it gives you a social role. You're the hero- heroic defender against evil. The problem is it replaces moral chaos with moral war. And so that warrior mentality has affected not only the church, but a lot of aspects of American culture, and the church is too enculturated. See what it's saying here? When you, when you make the other the other, then it's pretty easy also to make them the enemy. And the evil then is not slicing down through your own heart. It's slicing down between people and groups. And then what you end up with is a war. And in our day and time, we call that the culture wars. And so we struggle with the other. White, black, brown, rich, poor, male, female, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, capitalist, socialist, Russian, Ukrainian, straight, gay, Muslim, Asian, and go for as long as you want. And as long as they are that, It's easy to broad brush stroke them. And if it's convenient and if it works, I can paint them as my enemy. And so this war comes and this battle comes. And that's what we're experiencing in our time. We're seeing it across our screens now again, war across our screens in Ukraine. And it's even more vivid because it's it's being recorded on people's cell phones and cameras who are right there on the street. In some ways way more vivid than Vietnam was. But of course we're also experiencing it in our, in our political talk and in our religious talk and in our talk about freedom and our talk about the attacks on us and on our country from whichever party or group you think it is that's doing that. So what do we do How do we think, or let me put it another way, what would be a Jesus-centered response to war? Whether it's the war in Ukraine, or whether it's the war that I see on my TV screen, or that I feel when I talk to my crazy uncle. And the next few things I'm going to say without any uh, shame at all are directly stolen from another podcast that I heard this week. Somehow God put these podcasts on my on my on my um, my phone. It's a podcast called Theology on Mission. It's a podcast with David Fitch and Michael Moore. David Fitch is a professor of I don't know what he's a professor of at Northern Northern Seminary in Chicago. He's a fellow that I've read a lot of over the years and a fellow that I've heard speak at a couple of different con- uh, conferences. A, a, a really good, good thinker and um, a, a good person for integrating uh, the gospel with, with society. He's uh, written a number of books. Uh, David Fitch is an Anabaptist, which I won't go into what all that is, but Anabaptists in general are pacifists. So this is just the tradition from which he comes. And in this podcast, he talks about five understandings, not solutions, but understandings. What are ways that we can think or things that we could do as we experience either the war in Ukraine or the wars that are going around around us in our culture, in our society, and perhaps even in our own families? Five things. The first is, refuse to participate in evil. There are ways, says Fitch, to resist evil systems nonviolently. Where is your funding going? And when you vote for certain people, what kind of budgets are they proposing? The refusal to hate... Perhaps even take in hurting people. And perhaps not complain about paying more for gas or other things in order to keep money from flowing into, for example, the Russian coffers. So maybe I'm willing to pay six bucks a gallon for gas if that means that. The second is stand with the oppressed. Fitch says, what if, back in the 1940s, every German, every French person, every Dutch Christian had said, we will not let any Jew be loaded on a train to Auschwitz. Lots of them did it, but nowhere near everybody. What if they all did it? And how could we do it? How could you do it? And part of it for us right here where we are today I think is to understand that there, there are in our society people that actually are oppressed. You're not just poor because you're lazy. That may be part of your problem. But recognize, see that there are people that are oppressed. Spend time with them. Really listen to them. And then think practically, what can I do to together with this person, in community with this person, move forward to relieve the oppression? The third thing is to promote truth. Build relationships that can handle truth. This is a tough one if you're talking about your crazy uncle. And I know this from personal experience because I'm the crazy uncle. This is tough. How can you build bridges so that you really can talk about things that are on your hearts and on your minds, things that are bothering you, and really together look for truth? Be willing to dig for truth and be willing to admit complexity. Our society and our media wants us to believe in slogans the one-liner. It's because of the president that this isn't happening or that's happening. It's because of that senator that this is happening or that's happening. It's because of our mayor that this is happening or not happening. And things are never that simple. There are all kinds of layers of complexity. Search for them. Look for them. The fourth thing Fitch mentions is to pray. Prayer is uniting, he says, uniting the church to pray for peace. And when we do that, this opens up space for God to work. And it reduces hostility, first of all, between Christians, but then perhaps to spread out to the wider world. And the fifth one, and this is maybe a bit surprising for a pacifist Anabaptist. Consider the place of the police force, because the police force is violence used and listen to this real carefully for the protection of the innocent, never as an aggressive as aggressive thing. Police force and I would include the military in that is used for the protection of the innocent and it's by definition accountable to the people who for and among whom it works. Even David Fitch as a pacifist will say, there are times where either on a local level or on a national level, we need to protect the rights of the innocent. But always remember that violence is almost inevitably a default of evil. And in order to be in line with the kingdom of God and Jesus, we need to expend every effort to do away with violence on whatever level it occurs. Five understandings. Five things to think about as you think about the war in Ukraine. Or the culture war as you experience it, perhaps even in your own family with your crazy uncle or your crazy nephew. Jesus Christ, of course, was the man of peace. And he did not see the world as the other. But he emptied himself of his glory. And he came upon earth And he walked around and he drew this community of people around him. And everybody that he was with, he actually saw. He never broad-stroked or broad-brushed. He never made the other the enemy. His heart was open. His home was open to the extent he had a home. He was always looking for truth. He was always speaking out for the oppressed. That was his fundamental mission. And he was always doing what he could to speak for, but then also to bring peace. And in doing so, when he went on the cross, Paul says it in Colossians 2, he disarmed And I think this word disarmed is only used here in the New Testament. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the way of violence. He disarmed the way of war. He disarmed the seeing of someone else as the other And the proof that he did that was when he was on that cross, unjustly crucified, unjustly put to death. He looked out over that crowd. And because he was God, I believe he was looking out over the whole world. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The ultimate building of the bridge and seeing the other and disarming the powers that lead to violence and to war at every single level, so if we 're going to fight war, fight against war, if we 're going to fight against violence, if we 're going to fight against this evil, it's got to be rooted in this in this action of Jesus. And then together with him, filled with his spirit. And willing to take risks. And willing to do what's not normal. Violence is the normal thing. Waging war is the normal thing. Seeing the other as the other is the normal thing. And Jesus wants to disarm that. And to turn us around so that we're doing something else. And that is the magnificent challenge that we have in our time, to as Christians not be too enculturated, as David Brooks says, but to do something different. Amen.